From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. People were, were enthralled at that time by the ideas of cybernetics from the 40s and tended to believe that all things were information. What are, what are we looking at, Will? Lots and lots of flyers in the um, pagoda-like flyer structure uh, close to the intersection of death. What do we got? Let's see, free meditation classes. Um, something for art critics and residents. Save now! What do you see, Will? I see, um, attention parents, leave a little something behind for your Stanford student. Dot, dot, dot. Gift card, gift card, gift card. Stanford uh, bookstore. Uh, let's see. Uh, so author speaking. Um, volunteer in Africa, right there. Yeah, what's striking is, like, how thick it is. Like, how do you... Like, layers of I would guess more than six layers. Yeah. Still haven't reached the bottom of it. <laughs> Ooh, they got wet layers on the inside. Shooters needed. Dance shows, auditions, parenting, and the law. Uh, I'm still digging. <laughs> oh, oh I found yeah. the base. So that, how many layers would you say that is? Okay, we're looking at one, two, Hello. three, four. Hello. What you just heard was Will Rogers and I standing by a large public message board next to one of Stanford's busy bicycle roundabouts. We discovered layers upon layers of messages. And it made me wonder, why post all these flyers in just one spot? There are many ways we send and receive messages every day. There are the literal message boards plastered with flyers. There are the buses and streets lined with glossy advertisements and billboards. And there are the digital messages we post for the whole world to read on internet sites like MySpace and Facebook. With all the ways to communicate a public message, there are just as many to control those messages. Limiting the number of on-campus bulletin board pagodas might just be one of them. The messages we consume define our culture and community, so the way they are exchanged is vitally important. Ever since we have been messaging each other, be it cave drawings or colonial broadsides or Craigslist, there have been different ways to get a message across. There are private messages and public messages, socially approved messages and those that defy social norms and conventions. Writing on bathroom stalls and writing in cyberspace. Writing in books and writing on the wall. Today on our show, we address these very distinctions and ask the question, what do we get from writing on the wall? Whether it be a digital one or a physical chunk of concrete, why do we feel compelled to share our ideas and thoughts with the anonymous crowd? And what happens when the crowd writes back? You'll hear stories of people who make public buildings their own portfolio, and the unlikely origins of online internet communities. It's not Bill Gates, it's not Al Gore, but pot-smoking deadbeats from San Francisco. Really. Stay tuned and keep reading The Writing on the Wall. From 90.1 KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each week, we bring you an hour of stories that explore a single question or theme. Stories of every kind. Documentaries, fiction, memoir, academic sleuthing, even ballads. All written and produced by Stanford students, fellows, and faculty. This week's show, Writing on the Wall. Today, you'll hear stories of people who transform public space through text. Artists who see blank walls as canvases, 
and technological innovators who transform our very conception of what a public space could be. Our show today in three postings. Post one, hippies in cyberspace. Stanford professor Fred Turner tells the unlikely origins of internet virtual communities. Emphasis on commune. Post two, your bathroom stall, my art project. The story of one Stanford student who makes the crude vandalism on a bathroom wall into something much, much more. And post number three, graffiti, period. We'll learn that this form of writing on the wall is about more than marking territory and defacing subway cars, and how one can of spray paint can transform the world. I'm Dan Hirsch. Stay with us. We're going to start off our show about writing on the wall by focusing on a rather unlikely wall. Well, it's not even a wall at all. It's the internet. I talked with Stanford professor Fred Turner to hear the story of Stanford alum and 1960s countercultural techno-utopianist Stuart Brand. I discovered a story of commune living, heavy drug use, and the birth of Silicon Valley. So much of the public speech we engage in today is done on the internet, posting onto friends' MySpace pages, commenting onto message boards, or advertising through Craigslist. Besides the physical communities we are part of, most of us spend a great deal of our time in online communities as well. When we post pictures of hilarious kittens on a friend's Facebook wall, we often don't realize where this form of communication came from. It turns out its origins are some pretty unlikely innovators. To understand Facebook, MySpace, Craigslist, or Twitter, we have to look not to Silicon Valley, not Bell Labs, not MIT's Media Lab. We have to look to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco in the mid-60s. Hallucination generation. The experimenters who try anything. Imagine all the stereotypes of 1960s counterculture. The drugs, the sex, the long hair, and loose flowing clothes. Believe it or not, the high-tech online communities we experience today really begin here. What you wanted to do was find small-scale technologies with which to change one another's consciousness and build a new kind of society around that. Now, some of those technologies were, were things like you know, LSD, they were drugs. This is Fred Turner, an assistant professor in Stanford's communication department. He's done a lot of research about one man responsible for working towards developing mind-altering technologies. And no, I'm not talking about 1960s LSD guru Timothy Leary. I'm talking about Stuart Brand, a 1960s Stanford alum. Back in the late 1960s, San Francisco was awash in psychedelia and in communalism. Stuart Brand was involved in both movements. In this period of experimentation with mental states and radical utopian ideas about restructuring communities, Brand would help develop what Mac CEO Steve Jobs himself has called the conceptual forerunner of the World Wide Web. were tools for the transformation of the mind. But as Fred Turner points out, the legacy and practice of Brand's utopian vision for technology were a lot more complicated than we might guess for someone coming from the idealistic Haight-Ashbury counterculture. To understand Stuart Brand's technological innovations, we need to better understand the movement he was a part of, 
something that at the time was called new communalism. You know, Theodore Rozak, who popularized the term counterculture in 1968 in a book called The Making of the Counterculture, he talked about how we need not a politics of politics, but we need what he called a politics of consciousness. We need to step back, pull away from mainstream society, and find tools with which to connect to one another. So the hope for information technologies in particular was that they would literally um, free your mind, allow you to connect to other minds like it, and find and build communities of literally like minds. This was a very different way of thinking than the new left of that period. The new left is the youth movement that we associate with the political activities of the 60s, like the civil rights movement and the protests against the Vietnam War. The new communalists, on the other hand, had an alternate set of ideals and practices. You know, folks in that period, particularly Brand and folks associated with psychedelia and communalism, often believed that the best way to change the world was not through politics. You didn't want to do politics to change politics like the new left did. What you wanted to do was find small-scale technologies with which to change one another's consciousness and build a new kind of society around that. Now, some of those technologies were, were things like, you know, LSD. They were drugs, LSD and marijuana. Others, stereos, amplified sound. But they also included, for brand, information technologies, like the catalog. The catalog that Turner refers to is the Whole Earth Catalog. In 1968, with his wife Lois, his then-wife Lois, he co-founded the Whole Earth Catalog, a, a twice-a-year publication devoted to providing access to tools for the very large number of young people who were headed into communal living in that period. What was interesting about the tools that he wanted to provide was that they were tools for the transformation of consciousness. They were tools for the transformation of the mind. In his 2005 commencement speech at Stanford, Steve Jobs called the catalog Google in paperback. It was a book that seemed to contain the whole world. The illustrated catalog included reviews of books and products under seven broad categories. Understanding whole systems, shelter and land use, industry and craft, communications, community, nomadics, and learning. Like the internet, the Whole Earth catalog contained user-generated media. People will write in with their own reviews and ideas. Unlike traditional communities found in neighborhoods, workplaces, or schools, the Whole Earth catalog allowed people to exchange ideas and information with others thousands of miles away. The subscribers to the Whole Earth catalog formed a social network before the concept of networks were even completely theorized. This communal exchange of information had a lot of power for brand. Now, sometimes information technologies were about exchanging what we now today understand to be information, um, news, facts, tools, artifacts, that kind of stuff. But in another sense, people were, were enthralled at that time by the ideas of cybernetics from the 40s and tended to believe that all things were information and that LSD, for instance, was an information technology. So you can find people writing about acid as an information technology in this period. And the notion there is that information has a kind of very different sense, a sense of um, connection, a sense of emotionalness, a sense of consciousness unifying power. And so those two meanings of information, a meaning of information as fact and a meaning of information as experience of consciousness, get fused in this period. And they carry forward, I think, into our hopes for the personal computer.
you know, Stuart Brand and the whole Earth group that he was a part of are, I think, largely the people responsible for giving us the idea of the computer as a personally transformative device, not just an individually usable tool, but a personally transformative device. Um, and as he met up, as he, Brand, met up with the computer scientists at places like Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, Xerox Park, where many of the features of, of contemporary computers were developed, he brought with him a countercultural ethos of tool use that many of the people in those worlds embraced and celebrated as a way to think about computers and about connecting to one another through computers. One. So let's talk about the early 80s when they really came into life. One. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1980. The Vietnam War is over. Ronald Reagan, Gordon Gekko, and Top Gun ruled the hearts and minds of Americans. The political and social movements of the 1960s have died down, and the Whole Earth Catalog stopped its publication in 1971. But a little thing called the Internet is in its early developmental stages. For Brand, and new communalists like him, this provided a very exciting opportunity for the exchange of information and a radical shift in the structuring of community. Stuart Brand co-founded a, a community called The Well, the Whole Earth Electronic Link. At that time, it's a dial-in server. You dial in with a dial-in modem via your telephone line from home. You pay a monthly fee of about $8 um, and then a small fee to use the system. And uh, what you get when you dial in is a scrolling screen of text and nothing else. But that text consists of um, people who, who you know and who you can look up on the system speaking to one another. It's a little bit like reading a script in real time as people are acting. And the scripts are organized around different topics. So you could have a topic in music, a topic in politics. You enter that area in order to talk about that thing. And then if you're a member of the well, you also have the right to start your own links or threads, your own threads. So th the point is that this is a pre-web and also a pre-visual media system. Essentially, it's a really early bare-bones message board, like a chat room, without the animated emoticons or flashy graphics. It's a world in which it's just text. And people who are involved in that begin trying to understand that world almost as a, as a reincarnation of a 60s ideal. Because there are no pictures, uh, I think, people like John Perry Barlow start fantasizing the online world, and John Perry Barlow is a lyricist for the Grateful Dead and also a Republican, um, start fantasizing the online world as one where we can leave our bodies behind and connect to each other through this machine as once we tried to connect to each other through the Whole Earth Catalog, through the experience of LSD and kind of collective tripping in front of giant speakers at rock shows. And, and I think it's the, the, the lack of visual interface, the text-based interface that makes that possible. Now, to give you a sense of how important the well is, it's the first place about which anyone in public that I know of uses the term virtual community. The well wasn't an online free-for-all of ideas. It was a structured community with moderators. There, there were people, so at the well in particular, um, there were in fact individual hosts, but what's interesting about the first hosts at the well is that they came from a commune called The Farm, which was in Tennessee. And the, the farm is a famous commune, famous for, um, being a place where people tried to literally become um, naked to one another at a consciousness level, not a physical level, but at a consciousness level. And they got very, very good at the social dynamics of collective intimacy. And John Cote and Cliff Fagallo came from that world in the early 80s as it was kind of breaking up or at least becoming decommunalized. And they started working for the well and they brought both that ethos and the tactics of interpersonal connection literally from a commune into the online world. 
You can take the communalists out of the commune, but you can't take the commune out of the new communalists. Especially when a whole new type of technology seemed to promise revolutionary ways of experiencing the world and altering one's consciousness. Countercultural pioneers like Brand saw the internet as a means of achieving a digital utopia. But even though its founding ideals came from a hippie lifestyle of communal farming and organic food eating, the source and vision of that utopia did not exclude military research or making a few dollars. me when I looked into countercultural approaches to information was how much they owed to Cold War military industrial research. The kinds of things that resulted in, in bulletin boards and virtual communities actually started um, during a much earlier phase inside Defense Department research into computing um, as the internet and other inter connecting systems got arranged between computers, email was sort of a side function. And computer scientists started literally writing to each other, leaving notes for each other. And, and I find that fascinating because, you know, email and the things that follow, bulletin boards and virtual communities, are not actually things that emerge outside mainstream society. Rather, they emerge um, right in the middle of mainstream society, even mainstream military industrial defense culture. As the well grew in popularity, it also became more connected to the, quote, establishment. By the mid-80s, these folks are living in Silicon Valley. Um, the counterculture has largely melted away. They're living in a world of um, very rapid employment exchange. They're working for the high-tech industry. And so the well is both a community as a space to connect and feel intimacy with each other and a space in which to advertise your own skills and look for work. And that fusion is a really important one. That's, in my view, when new communalism becomes the new economy. As online communities developed, they became used not just for heightened consciousness and utopian ideals, but for making business connections. But Turner points out that the history of the well does not follow the familiar storyline of aging idealists selling out. In some ways, their core ideals were very much in line with the entrepreneurial spirit of Silicon Valley in the 1980s. We often have a story, we often imagine that, that capitalism co-ops our better instincts. And I don't think that's true here. I, I think the two were always entwined. And I think one of the things that's so powerful about the new communalists in the 1960s was they didn't think politics would change politics. They thought business and technology would change politics. And though no right-winger would have associated with them in that time because of their social style, um, their ideals were in fact quite right-wing. You know, through business and technology and the liberation of the individual, we will achieve a new kind of society. It's for that reason that in the 1990s, they could embrace and be embraced by Newt Gingrich as they were. You know, Newt Gingrich made the cover of Wire magazine. Um, that's quite a thing. A seemingly hip and liberal tech magazine featuring the former Republican Speaker of the House is quite surprising. Turner argues that the Wells' complicated legacy extends into the online communities we use every day. Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, you name it. You know, it's interesting. I, I see less of the utopian hopes. I see fewer of the utopian hopes that I saw in the 80s. I, I don't see, for example, people speaking on MySpace or Facebook um, about wanting to leave their bodies behind and find a new kind of intimacy in cyberspace that they can't find in the regular world. Maybe a little of the latter, but not, not so very much. Um, what I do see is the fusion of community building and commerce, personal branding and friending going on at the same time. 
it's not as utopian as it used to be, um, but it actually ironically achieves some of the goals that the utopians hope to achieve. I think the greatest danger in both the communes of the 1960s and contemporary information um, communities is the illusion that politics have gone away. You know, one of the things that you really saw in the communes was when they turned away from politics, they had to still organize these communities. How did they do it? They organized them around charisma, cool, a shared sense of people like us, and the charismatic leaders gained quite a bit of power. Ultimately, these communes fell apart because they had no language for talking about how to share resources. They didn't have a politics that could be done explicitly in words. It wasn't reasoned out. It was often just about being cool. Are you cool enough to stay? If not, be gone, man. Okay. That logic permeates, or a variation of it, permeates online spaces today in that places like Facebook and MySpace, to the extent that they promise community, they promise community on terms very much like the, the promise from the 60s. Some people come to those communities with more cultural, financial, social capital. The communities themselves, in the case of the online ones, are, are frequently owned by corporations seeking profit. Um, those things are pushed away, and again, we have very little language so far anyways to do the political negotiating about the kinds of resources that we're sharing in those spaces. And that's a problem. Google, Yahoo, when the Chinese government came knocking on their door, they said sure, and they gave people up. Okay, it's been a while, but in the 1970s, Richard Nixon came knocking on some doors. And a, a generation that's grown up with the internet has not lived through a time when the American government came knocking on the doors of college students. And I think for that reason, we, meaning college folks who use things like Facebook, may have stopped noticing that there's data aggregation going on in there that would be enormously advantageous for a government to have. And that under certain circumstances, governments will threaten media organizations, will seek out that information, and will pursue it. And under the current terms, we have no political language for even talking about the value of that information in the broader society or how to resist um, its potential resale, redistribution um, for political purposes. Recently, Facebook got in trouble when it changed its terms of service. The new terms gave the corporation the right to, quote, distribute user content for any purpose, commercial, advertising, or otherwise. Consumer groups and concerned users started advocacy groups to protest Facebook's expansive new rights. Since the uproar, Facebook has since gone back to its old license agreement. And CEO Mark Zuckerberg has started a group called Facebook Bill of Rights and Responsibilities, in which users can voice their opinions. Currently, the debate is still going on. What I would like to see is a continued um, emphasis on communalism with politics. If we can bring the politics back, terrific. You know, if you can get people going on Facebook, reading the end-user license agreement, and changing their collaboration, we're, that's great. Stuart Brand is the author of numerous books and works part-time for the Global Business Network. The Well is still alive and thriving at well.com and is currently run by Salon Media Group. Fred Turner is an assistant professor in communication at Stanford and author of From Counterculture to Cyberculture.
Not all writing on the wall aims towards the lofty utopian ideas of the well and its members. Some of it can be downright crude. For a class project, Stanford art student Molly Butcher decided to turn her eye to the more unsavory forms of public speech. She looked to one of the oldest forms of public debate around, bathroom stall writing. Butcher transformed the normally small-scale private writing into big chalk letters on the sidewalk. She made the often gross and inappropriate words of anonymous vandals large and visible for the whole community. In the process, she learned that sometimes all it takes is one lone scribbler to start off a huge conversation. In this story, writing on the wall writes back. Storytelling producer Will Rogers recently spoke with Butcher over the phone as she walked down the streets of Berlin, Germany. Where are you right now? Describe where you are. Mm, I am... I'm coming up on the Temple of Kunstala. I'm in like a very dead part of the city. There are lots of like government buildings and stuff and cars. I'm about to come up on like one of the biggest streets in Berlin with lots of lights. Are you walking right now? You sound like you're walking. I am walking. I decided to walk instead of take the train so I could hear you. Oh, cool. Okay. I'm just mostly interested in hearing you tell the story. I only know bits and pieces of it. Um, okay, um, let's see. So I actually got really, really sick and we had like to turn a project in. So it ended up being a really fast project. I'd been like collecting graffiti from around, um, mostly around campus actually, uh, which there's not very much of. I don't know if you've noticed. Right. I guess the most interesting graffiti on campus is the graffiti in the boys' stalls in my library. And so I um, snuck in and, and copied the whole thing down and sort of made like a flow chart out of it. Okay. Um, and then decided to like trans transpose it, if that's the right verb, um, like out in front of the library itself in sort of like a very... Um, how do you explain this? Um, there's so much chalk on campus as it is. Like it's, it's something that you don't, you zone out. You know, it's like it's omnipresent, and so people are like whatever. <laughs> I guess so. Sort of put something that's offensive into like a very um, easily ignored medium. I guess yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. What was the what? actual content of the piece, though? Oh, what was written in it? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of, like, really banal stuff, I guess. Like, stuff that you read and you're like, oh, like, why did you write that? But then there was a bunch of stuff about, like, I don't know, like, someone's like, holy shit, I'm bi. And then there was this whole thread that had to do with that. And then people commenting on how, like, you know, don't be such a fag or, like, things like that. I think there was a bunch of, like, more traditionally Stanford-y graffiti, like, talking about some class, and then people were fighting about whether I was a good class. <laughs> or someone would be like, I'm gay, and then they'll be like, oh, like, this is my phone number, call me, and, you know, it's not really their phone number, it's, like, their friend's phone number. Right. Or, like, people talking about whether or not, like, Stanford or Berkeley girls are hotter.
So the graffiti was already there. All you did was move mm-hmm. it from one place to the other. Yeah. I actually got a really bad critique. Everyone hated it. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but how did other people respond to it? Um, yeah, I think at first they were really, really offended because they would, you know, because when you first walk upon it, if you, if you notice, if you notice the chalk at all, first of all, you know, there's a bunch of offensive stuff that says like words that people aren't supposed to use. And so people got really offended at first until they sort of realized that it was, yeah, just the moving of something from this really private, like, I don't know, I think bathroom stalls are sort of this funny place that are, like, simultaneously incredibly, incredibly private and, like, really public. It has this sort of feeling of intimacy and this sort of false feeling of anonymity when you write in it. It is really, like... It's only intended for 50% of the population. Like only, it's, it's like a very specific audience. And I think that people, I don't know, I just think it's interesting that, that it has that sort of like incredible privacy and publicity at the same time. Like people feel like, feel like they're untouchable in a bathroom stall. that stuff from the men's bathroom like did did it change the way you think about men um like the actual experience of going in was really kind of intimidating because like i actually went in and copied it and i just felt like super out of place um no i mean to be honest i think it's sort of um it sort of reminded me of like being in a fraternity you know but girls write stuff like that too, you know? It's just different. Huh. Not so misogynistic, I guess. But yeah, a little bit. How do you feel about the graffiti in Berlin compared to the graffiti at Stanford? Um, I think it's simultaneously much more constructive and, like, much... I don't know, when people write really negative graffiti in Berlin, it's... It seems to have much more of an impact, you know, like, like there's this one that says something along the lines of, like, they haven't garnished from Austin gelernt or something like, we didn't learn anything from the East. You know, like, that seems to carry, like, much more of a weight than, than things people write in the Stanford bathroom. What sort of sensation did it create, going back to the Stanford graffiti piece? It inspired, like, a bunch of people to write. I think inspired is a weird word. Um, a lot of people wrote responses to it. So there was a big, like, I think it went on a while after the piece, like, treaded away. But people would draw rainbows and write things like, um, like, pro-gay statements, I guess, if you could say that. Or, like, anti-misogynistic statements and draw pictures, like, in, in and around the piece, but I don't think anyone, no one, like, 
no one interfered with what I had done. Like, no one crossed things out or, like, tried to get rid of them, but, yeah. um, but sort of went around them. Yeah. What was some of the other graffiti that you found at Stanford? Um, like, to be honest, there's really almost none. It's kind of like um, a wasteland of graffiti. But, I mean, there's a little bit in the libraries, mostly on desks. Um, and that's like Chem 103X sucks. And then people will write like threads about that. Or um, I love so and so. And I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty tame. Um, and there's not very much. Why is it that Stanford doesn't have much graffiti as it is? Um, hmm. I don't know, I think maybe we're a bunch of rule followers. Hmm. Maybe that's something to do with, like, even getting there in the first place. Um, I think they also do, they're pretty good about covering things up, you know? Like, I feel like they paint over that stuff yeah. somewhat regularly, which, like, you know, people just don't like putting the first mark down, I guess, ever. Um, I don't know, like I said, I think it's also a really PC place to be. Yeah. I think especially being being here, I'm realizing that because people, people just aren't as PC and I don't think it's, I'm not sure if it's a bad thing, um, but yeah, I think people, people at Stanford like don't want to like step on toes really. But then also, you know, I noticed that once you start, like once you sort of break the purity or whatever, people are really like sort of almost eager. No one, people just, I don't think, want to break the rules. But once they've been broken, it's like whatever. <laughs> Molly Butcher is currently a crop intern in Berlin. She works at an art gallery. Producer Will Rogers is a senior at Stanford. Molly Butcher's art project challenged the distinctions we make between public space. The not-so-public was suddenly made very public. In the last part of our show, we hear stories of people who also challenged the pristine order of public space. There are people who reclaim the blank surfaces of municipal buildings, commercial vans, and shimmering subway cars. Are they just taggers and bombers? Or are they artists? I'm talking about graffiti artists, or practitioners, or vandals. Who knows? Stanford students Lindsay Garlock, Mitchell Wilcox, and Lexi Chang Shang traveled up and down the East Bay to talk to some of graffiti's greatest masters and a few of its greatest critics. They gained insight on art and community and asked the valuable question, who really owns the streets? It is everywhere. On stop signs, the corner liquor store, plastered on telephone poles, or passing by on semi-trucks. You've even seen it in commercials, clothing, and advertisements. It moves from the billboards above to the streets and then even underground. You have seen graffiti, but have you seen what is behind it? Recently, in the San Francisco Bay Guardian, George Schultz wrote an article titled Graffiti Gang Wars. In it, he described the meeting of the San Francisco Graffiti Advisory Board. Quote, 
President Mark Bruno suggested inviting a graffiti artist or academic with expertise on the subject to speak to the group. Bruno figured an expert could offer new insight into the culture and motivation behind graffiti. The 14-seat board includes a cross-section of city workers and concerned citizens, but they swiftly rejected the idea. One member said he didn't want vandals to be given a platform. Another said she'd just as soon invite a drug dealer to speak to the board. There's nothing to understand about graffiti but how to stop it, they argued. As this article reveals, all of us are concerned with shared public space. We want to know how it appears, how it is organized, and how we may make use of it. A graffiti artist offers his opinion. Whose land is it, or you know, whose whose streets, you know, who who lives in those streets, who occupies those streets on a daily basis, and shouldn't you know those people have some say in in their environment, their their community, what they they see and experience on a daily basis. And in our community, there is a wide spectrum of opinion. Where some believe all vandals should be jailed, others believe graffiti has become an important experience for the disenfranchised. It has even evolved into an art form. Folks don't know which side to take. We weren't so sure ourselves. What up? I'm Lexi. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Mitchell. Like most people, our group was divided in discussing what some called art and others vandalism. We're on a mission to explore what is actually behind graffiti. What exactly does graffiti do for people, and what can be done about it? Lindsay gives us an introduction to the graffiti evolution. Obviously, this debate is not new. In fact, it was central to the urban crisis of the 1960s. The urban landscape was falling apart. New York City was taken as a model for all other cities, so the decline of New York City was iconic. Once a real-life Disneyland, the city became shadowed as the rotten apple, the asphalt jungle, the naked city. It was marked by continued discrimination, the poor becoming poor, crime, and drug addiction. Also, institutional failure plagued the city for three reasons. First, public policy benefited only the elite. Also, public institutions destroyed the stable community life. And finally, housing projects threw the poorest to the side. The urban renewal project of New York City was in fact an urban failure. It destroyed significant portions of employment and residential opportunities for the poorer. The physical, economic, and social transformations made the non-white poor demographic invisible. The crisis was only part of a national paranoia of social and political collapse. This made space for a marginalized subculture that had a desperate need for a new way to express itself. A graffiti legend of the urban crisis tells us it's all in the name. When you're poor, that's all you've got. And his name was Is The Wiz. 40% of African American and 30% of Hispanic youth were living in poverty. Graffiti was a way to claim identity, despite the hopelessness of the situation. The public could not understand that writing their names in public space was their method of urban renewal. The public was told to believe that poor people of color were primarily responsible for the problems of urban America. So we needed a place to start. I immediately thought of my cousin, Demon202, who's written for the past decades in many different cities, including D.C., San Francisco, New York, and Tokyo. So I called him up and asked him, how has graffiti evolved? He had a uh, graph, just people writing their names back in the day. Those were the neighborhood graph writers, cats writing on subways, you know what I mean? You know, and then they started taking it to the outside of the subways. And, you know, this was just letters, like as if you were writing it with pencil. 
and then it just kind of evolved into, you know, outlines around the letters, and then it got, you know, stars and little doo-wops here and there, and then eventually Wild Style kind of came out of it. And then that's when people became actual dedicated graffiti writers. Graffiti, graffiti has evolved on its own, you know, on its own branch to this whole thing that can't even be, you know, encompassed in a short sentence, you know. And for most people, graffiti is just a short sentence. We knew we needed more elaboration, so we went out and got it. May 12, 2004. Today's the day. We're amped to say the least. We've set up interviews with two of the most reputed graffiti artists in the Bay Area, Crayon and SK. Each have been interviewed and cited extensively in the fundamental texts about graffiti culture, and we're on our way to their loft. After a few wrong turns, running some yellow lights, deciding MapQuest is all bad, and traffic jam on 880 East, we pull up to 5501 San Leandro, where SK and Crayon live and take a look at it. It is lime green with maroon doors. Across the street, there's an electric power plant, a dirt parking lot with abandoned hubcaps, coiled wire, and the Vulcan Cafe. We wait nervously at room 17, but the door is already open, so we find our way in. Several paintings and huge plywood pieces leaned against the wall. Yes, it's true. You can do anything and everything with a spray can. We've only seen clips of the 17-year-old crayon from the 1980s. The wild style days, with high tops, chains, neon greens, blues, and pinks. But he looks really different now, 20 years later. We are struck by his presence. He is wearing a faded black t-shirt and is broad-shouldered. That's why I got these big legs, man. <laughs> Not to hold my weight, but I, you go up and down those ladders constantly, it's, it's a chore. It's crazy. He shakes our hand firmly and pulls out a huge black portfolio, two by four. Feet, that is. With every article and picture of his work. SK, a member of the same crew, lives downstairs. When he comes up the stairs, he seems a bit anxious. But as the interview progresses, the thoughts just pour out. We're finally here to find out what it's all about from the perspectives of the writers themselves. What is the impulse behind graffiti? We are hip hop. Me, you, everybody. We are hip hop. So hip hop is going where we going. I think uh, hip hop as a culture, like graffiti, emceeing, DJing, the whole idea of humans as cultural beings, as being able to create, and creation being an important part of community and of being, where that's something that's really lacking in our culture as a whole. We're constantly alienating people and trying to commodify them so they can buy products, and it's not focused around community, which is, I think, hip-hop in general, and graffiti, it's all about community and interacting with your artistic peers and building and elevating ideas. And this is SK telling us in his own words that graffiti is a language. Within the graffiti community, there's a certain building of, of style and of artistic elements by people sitting around and talking and sketching and, you know, oh, yeah, that's dope. We're trying to use each other's creative output to intensify and focus their own. But graffiti writers are not only fighting the adults, they are also objecting to a larger system. It's a shame, but I think the political and cultural climate that we live in right now is very 
you know, almost edging towards Puritanism. It's very closed-minded and accepting of what we're fed. Even over in Europe or other places in the world, people are more open to a cultural dialogue as far as like trying to understand what graffiti is or why are kids interested in it and actually promoting it as an art form. Whereas we don't really see that in the States at all. Like it's always vilified. Part of it is born out of struggle. That's the, the reason why it's there in the first place. It's because those walls are gray and people are disconnected from, from culture as a whole. Graffiti is not and refuses to be part of the system. But now it is accepted as legal expression and is often exploited for mass commercialism. Many artists feel graffiti is selling out. Because of this, dilemmas surface that are different for different artists. Once things are played out or bought and sold, they sort of lose some essence of their power by being over-commercialized or, or processed. Our society as a cultural machine has a way of, of doing that, you know, processing culture and, and feeding it back to us watered down. Like, that already has happened to graffiti in, in a large extent. In exploring legal work, Crayon has received mixed reviews. It was kind of weird because I got a lot of people hating me and I got a lot of people, like, respecting me because they just don't like people doing positive stuff. I mean, you're going to always get haters. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just dealing with that kind of fame. I got, mm. I got a whole email box full of, like, hate replies, hate mails, you know? <laughs> but then I got another box that's, like, you know, uh, quadruple times of people that's digging my stuff, you know? Like, oh, yeah, yo, much props, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yo, that's cool, that's cool. And then you got some couple of, like, don't, yo, don't ever bring your to Chicago, son, you know? Your <laughs> gonna get, you know, like, whacked on, you know, whatever. Another angle we wanted to consider was the tension between artistic styles within the culture itself. SK sees this artistic rivalry as positive. I, I think that's an interesting aspect of hip-hop culture is the rivalry and how rivalry was used as a tool to intensify the learning and practice of arts. Like you'd have break-in battles or DJ battles, and it was people settling disputes through artistic merit, through battles of like, see how, how beautiful I can do this, you know, rather than through a, a destructive form of settling a dispute. SK claims that graffiti is a way to promote creation rather than destruction. There's a common misconception that graffiti leads to violence, but Crayon tells us that this misconception is sometimes appreciated by the graffiti culture. It has very little to do with gangs, and I think when people see it on television, they think it's gang-related. The first thing is gang, graffiti. It's like always a negative connotation. That's why people in New York, they don't even call it graffiti. They call it like style writing or spray can art or aerosol art, you know, because graffiti has a negative connotation like breaking windows and stuff, you know, Nick, that's what they think. Graffiti, you know, it's like they back off, you know. You have to admit though, some kids love that. Crayon and SK thanked us for the interviews and offered to give us any additional information we needed in the future. They invited us to their gallery show and gave us numbers of other people we should contact. We walked out the door and to the car, but before leaving, we took a picture. Crayon and SK's comments on the relationship between graffiti and gangs reminded us of something Demon 202 had mentioned in our phone conversation. Yeah, or like, what do you see the relationship? Hell no, that's like, that sounds like this report that Hard Copy did on graffiti back in the day, talking about there's graffiti in the neighborhood, it brings more violence and more rapage and killage and drugs, and graffiti is bad, and 
Now we knew we had some hot, hot tape with three reputed graffiti artists, but we knew it, it just wouldn't be fair to go home without another perspective. So we kept driving through Oakland until we found it. I believe that people in gangs mark their territory with graffiti, but just because you do graffiti doesn't mean that you're in a gang. Just because you're in a gang doesn't mean you're a tagger. Like, if I'm walking down the street and I see a bunch of tags, I'm not going to be like, oh god, I'm in a gang-infested neighborhood, you know? Certain generations, they're more specific with graffiti, and just because they use graffiti as their mode of art or communication doesn't mean they're in a gang. These are the very words of a city official, not a graffiti artist. We drove to City Hall to interview Niccolo De Luca, a representative of the graffiti abatement program in Oakland. However, his views do not necessarily reflect those of the Public Works Agency. Graffito, a recent publication by Michael Walsh, explores both graffiti and the war against it. We offer De Luca a quotation from Graffito to evoke his personal opinions on the matter. In the quote, Eske says, People with money can put up signs. You just have to have the money. If you don't have the money, you're marginalized. You're not allowed to express yourself or to put up words that you think other people should see. Camel, they're up all over the country. And look at the message Camel is sending and companies like them. They can put up 40 billboards in a city in every city in the country because they have the money to rent those billboards. You go out into neighborhoods in East Oakland and the billboards you see are selling alcohol or tobacco. They're just trying to keep the masses paralyzed so they can go about their business with little resistance. SK shows that graffiti objects to the system. But we wanted to explore the perspective of the system itself. DeLuca responds. With regards to the gentleman's statement about the media, no, totally, it's clear. Certain parts of town, you look at the billboards and you're like, what the hell are they selling? It's either about you know, booze or cigarettes. That is offensive. And unfortunately, those companies that put up those billboards have the money to put the message out. And I could see what he's saying. If you have the money, you can get your message. Whereas with the means, people are going to hear you louder. So I think that on one hand, I would not want to hold back free speech. But on the other hand, you got to think of what you're doing, how that impacts where it is. I feel good because I got my message out. People are going to read it. I did on the side of somebody's building. What about the person who owns that building? So I think depending on what venue you do it in, I would have more respect and understanding for it that way. I would respect the, the artist if they're not harming other people. I just think that sometimes you got to look deeper into what you're doing. But many graffiti artists have looked deeper. There is definitely a consciousness within the culture. Demon 202 gave us this perspective. For a lot of people, especially for me, when you're bombing, you have to love the city that you're in. Which brings me to another thing. There's some rules about destroying property. You know, cats don't really ride on churches, synagogues, and they don't ride on, you know, people's personal cars. Vans, you know, people bomb the hell out of vans because it's commercial. But as far as personal stuff, personal property, cats kind of stay away from that. Because it's in a public space, it is no longer hidden in museums, galleries, or institutionalized for the elite. It's not excluded to the high class. Art is free for consumption, for anyone. As Crayon said, artists really know the power of graffiti art. If you hit the corner, you have about 10,000 people watching your stuff, instead of a couple snobby people trying to buy only a tiny piece of canvas. Graffiti writers. I wrote graffiti on the black. Graffiti is the written word. I wrote graffiti on the black. Demon 202 speaks from experience. A while ago when I was bombing, I stopped writing. I stopped busting tags. The only people that read tags are graffiti writers and cops. That's the only people that read tags, you know what I mean? So I wanted to hit, you know, the mass market. You know, like hit them, you know, broaden my uh, 
constituency, you know. I, I, so I started, you know, busting these little faces, you know, like characters and stuff on the streets so that people that, you know, didn't necessarily want to read anything, you know, got hit by it, you know. And I wasn't sure if it was working until I ran into this old Jewish lady. She caught me doing it, and she was like, oh, you're the one that does those. I love those. Those, those things are hot. I love them. So I was like, yeah, boy, there we go. You know, when some old Jewish lady from Queens is, like, bigging up your shit. That's when you know, that's when you know that you're hot. Not only is graffiti democratizing in that aspect, but its practitioners are also beginning to diversify. More students with BAs and even law degrees are becoming dedicated graffiti artists. It's becoming intellectualized. A lot of the influences that it picked up while it got commercialized are coming back into the hardcore graffiti aspect of it. Like art school cats started getting into it and motion graphics designers and animation designers got all into it. It added a whole technical aspect to it. And now that's kind of making a U-turn and the technical side is coming back to the actual graph writers and it's getting a lot iller now. The lifestyle reaches across demographics as well. I'll tell you what surprised me way back, like up until 93, the thing that surprised me the most was that it was mostly white folks doing it. I was, I was stunned, you know what I mean? From way out in the suburbs that, you know, drove their, <laughs> drove their beamers downtown into D.C. to bomb. Crayon even commented by the end of our interview that in the graffiti culture, quote, you look around at your crew and everyone is different. Boys, girls, blacks, some Asians, whites, everyone all together doing their thing. Graffiti has granted many different people access to an underground culture. This bridges different racial and economic classes, which may help to build a stronger community. But still, nationally, almost every city chooses to actively fight against graffiti. But an alternative approach to graffiti has been taken by the city of Oakland, where public policy is not as strongly anti-graffiti. Instead, the abatement program is meant to give the residents responsibilities to take care of their own city. Their campaign to promote the arts has given Oakland a taste of legal graffiti. Public works is towards stopping vandalism. The city as a whole would be moving the energies towards murals and encouraging um, artistic expression. And um, there's grants that folks can go to apply. They go to the uh, Mayor's Cultural Arts Commission. They hear the uh, presentations and they give grant funding for it. So it's pretty cool. Demon202 explains that it is not only a legal work that is exciting and respected by members of the graffiti culture. When asked to describe his most memorable graffiti experience, Demon202 actually chose a legal piece. I'm real proud of this joint in D.C. Me, my man Dios, and my man Stein did this two-story legal joint, and that joint was mad, mad fun, just because it was like a labor of love, you know, because it's this huge wall right next to this highly used, you know, metro station, so mad people are going to see it. It's been there for seven years, and it's still rolling. Wow. So I'm real amped about that. A couple days after our interview, Crayon invited us to meet him at the Merritt BART station at 1 p.m. From there, we'd be taken with his crew to witness, as he puts it, just a bunch of styles being created on the fly and listening to music. Writers are helping each other get better as far as ideas, color schemes, and most of all, dope graffiti styles. He may use the butcher paper from the sketch session in future gallery shows. Nicolo DeLuca even offered me an internship in Oakland's Public Works program. Most importantly, Lindsay Mitchell and I learned that we can really build on each other. Interviewing each artist opened our minds to a whole new system, a new way of seeing what is around us and where we stand inside of it. 
And we gotta say, we're amped, to say the least, to see how it will all change. Lindsay, Mitchell, and Lexi are graduates from the class of 2007. Today's program was produced by Will Rogers, Lindsay Garlock, Mitchell Wilcox, Lexi Tsang-Shang, and myself, Dan Hirsch, with direction from Jonah Willengantz and Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Fred Turner, Molly Butcher, Crayon, and SK, as well as the Oakland Public Works Department. Also thanks to Hannah Krakauer, Bob Smith, and Mark Lawrence. This show was engineered live by Hannah Krakauer. Original music for the show was written and performed by Johnny Huynh, Lachlan Casey, and Ill Conditioned. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week when we'll hear very short stories recorded live at the four-minute reading series. For Writing on the Wall and the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Dan Hirsch.